Yo, yo, yo. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World, where I am trying my best not to uh, sweat myself half to death because it is absolutely mental right now. My studio is also at the very top of this house, and so heat rises and all that kind of thing, and so it's just absolutely mental. This glass was basically full of ice about five minutes ago, and the ice is no more. So we're doing the best we can uh, in this heat wave, record temperatures in the UK today. And so uh, we will be having a hot conversation as well. We've got Orlando Gadea here, who is the uh, VP of... Uh, global VP of customer experience transformation at Stanley Black & Decker. Uh, Orlando has a wealth of experience in working on conversational AI solutions in the enterprise, and we're going to get into all of his lessons that he's learned over the years and share them with you in just one moment. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I want to tell you about a workshop that we're running this week, which is a completely free workshop. If you would like to attend, go to vux.world forward slash Cognigy, and the workshop is going to be facilitated by myself, and we're going to walk you through some steps in order to boost and build your CX maturity. We'll be looking at all kinds of things from your vision to your roadmap to the people and processes that you need to have in place and helping you scale what you do, whether it's from a conversational AI perspective or more generally from a CX perspective, uh, we'll be helping you develop your maturity and understand the steps you need to take to do that as well. It's this Thursday. Go to vux.world forward slash Cognigy, that's C-O-G-N-I-G-Y to find out more. We're also doing it on the 1st of September as well. So if you can't make this Thursday, you can definitely uh definitely make uh september the first so there you go please do join that and we'll see you there now without further ado ladies and gentlemen boys and girls please welcome orlando gadea who is as i said the global vp of customer experience transformation at uh, standing black and decker orlando welcome hi Kane. thank you so much for having me thank you for joining us thank you for joining us it's uh, I, I imagine you've probably got air conditioning where you are have you yeah for sure with this heat wave Yes, you don't look half as uh, <clears throat> hot and bothered as I am here, sitting, driven with. Uh, yeah, there you go. Anyway, thank you for joining. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, why don't we kick off then, uh, maybe by telling us a bit about, about yourself, Orlando. You've got a lot of experience in uh, working on conversational AI and chatbots and stuff like that. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about where your interest in this stuff came from, and then what led you into where you are now at Stanley Black and Decker. Yeah, of course. Um... So, you know, part of Stanley Black & Decker, we were working on, on a transformation of our business, right? We, we were moving from selling tools to selling tools and experiences. We were working on, on, on improving uh, our tools, uh, adding value and understanding that, you know, it, it's not just about the steel. It's, it's about everything that goes with, with a tool. We're not here to, to deliver the steel. We're, we're here to enable builders to, to achieve results. So as we start adding this layer of experience in, into the tools, you start having the challenges on how do you deliver these experiences at the scale in a cost-efficient way. And that's where conversational AI plays a, a very important role because it makes yourself available on demand pretty much 24-7 um, at, at a speed that, that it's really hard to do without leveraging a conversational AI today. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> it's amazing how, you know, we've gone from, you know, the the kind of like one-to-one -one relationship that businesses had 
which was, you know, if you go back far enough, it was in the marketplaces and in and, and the physical stores and things like that, where it's one kind of shop assistant and one customer to a, a place where it's one to many with the birth of the internet and mobile. It means you can have one website or one mobile app used by thousands of people at the same time. But that didn't necessarily do what it was promised in all cases, did it? And so we've almost kind of slipped back now into into a one-to-one relationship again where call centers are being overrun, especially over your likes of COVID and even still today. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, live chat was implemented onto websites and into apps as a way of trying to, you know, catch the fallout of the people that the website wasn't catering for. But even those live chat conversations are one to few at best. You know, like I've I've heard of some people that can handle like 10 live chat conversations at any one time, but I think that's very few and far between. And so it's almost like we've gone back to this one-to-one relationship with between com- companies and, and uh, customers again. And, and conversational AI seems to be a way of, getting back to that one-to-many kind of scale. I wonder if that's something that you've kind of observed as well. Yeah, absolutely. For for us, sort of the name of the game, it, it's trust, right? Uh, if you think about brand, what is brand but, but a representation of trust, right? You choose the products from brands that, that you trust, right? And, and this brand becomes the key element for you to decide on, on what is the product. And, and you trust things to which you have a good relationship. It used to be in the past that your relationship with the product that you are using was enough. But today with, with technology and, and scale, you look for much more than that. And you look for great experiences. You, you look for great customer support. And, and what great customer support means is that your needs are fulfilled immediately without problems, you, you expect a seamless experience. And where it's one-to-one, one-to-many, we grow used to, to people, great companies, knowing us, anticipating our needs. And and, and that's the challenge with, with the scale, right? And, and that's what we try to deliver. And that's where, again, technology plays a very significant role into helping you achieve that goal. But understanding that Back to the principle, what you are doing, it's, it's building this trust with, with your customers, building this trust with the people that engage with you and, and whole, wholeheartedly try to make these connections and, and, and help them whenever they need help, uh, support, whatever it's needed to make sure that, that this trust that was initially put on you, um, you know, you come through and, and, and you deliver these great experiences that people to be honest, I, I now used to have, right? Um, mm. you, you hear about companies like Amazon or, or Uber, and, and that's now the new bar. Everybody expects the relationship between myself and, I, and, and any company I'm engaging with to, to abide to those high standards, right? Mm, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so for Stanley Black & Decker, Are you mostly kind of like, um, in terms of how you sell your products, is it mostly through, it's mostly through distributors and other retailers, or have you you got also a direct sales channel? It is uh, mostly by by channel partners, and when I say mostly, I mean 99.99%, right? Mm. Uh, It is through channel partners. Right. So where does your kind of, 
where does your sort of demand come from from the customer experience side of things then is it that people contact stanley black and decker directly post-purchase is it like a research kind of journey like i wonder if you can talk us through some of the you know some of the either the use cases or some of the conversations or some of the kind of contact that you that you do receive yeah for sure it changes globally uh, it, it depends on, on where is the market and, and how are we going to market. But I would say that mostly you can divide in pre-sales questions, people asking you if this product would be the right for the application that they have in mind. Uh, a lot of people just flat out asking what kind of products should they buy. Um, then in areas where, where we have e-commerce, a lot of uh, questions related to the transaction warranties and, and things like that a lot, a lot of questions on where to buy our products. Those would be on the pre-sale side. And then on the post-sale side, you have a lot of questions about, uh, you know, where, where do you need to service your product or warranty questions or people asking where is the closest service center located, um, questions about products that are under warranty and, and, and stop working. Uh, but I would say that 70% of the questions or 75% of the questions globally are, are more oriented to the relationship, where to buy, what to buy, how to buy it, than warranty fulfillment. Mm, interesting. And when it comes to conversational AI then and building those language models and all that kind of stuff, it's typically easier to do that if you've got kind of confined conversations. You know, you might start with a conversation which is, I don't know, returns for argument's sake, where there's defined inputs and defined information that you need to get from a customer in order for you to make that happen. Whereas when you're dealing with the front end of the customer journey, you're dealing with a lot of a, a much broader set of um, possibilities, should we say. I wonder if you can talk us through some of the, either some of the challenges or, or some of your observations around trying to tackle that broad, you know, pre-sales questions and answers and stuff like that from a, from a language model point of view. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, as you as you try to open new spaces, the, the questions can be completely different, right? And conversational AI works better in, in the case of these frequently asked questions uh, or these conversation flows that, that you can anticipate where are they going to go, right? For example, in the post-purchase, cycle. Somebody asks you about the warranty, then most likely they have a product that, that it's not working. So you know that the steps are, are always very similar. What is your product? What's the serial number? You validate some steps, then you would normally issue a shipping label or some sort of direction for the customer. So it, it's, it's more structure. But as you go into the pre-sales, there are just so many ways in one language to ask the same question. There, it's, it's very hard to understand sometimes the intent behind the questions. So it becomes uh, far less structure than when you're dealing on, on the post-purchase sale. And, and that brings a huge, huge complexity into how do we solve these problems. Um, and there's something very important that sometimes I, I think gets understated when, when you are deploying AI, right? The bot will be as intelligent 
as you train him to be. What does that mean? You will design the conversation flows and, and you will feed information. But this information will come from two places, either your knowledge base or your systems. So when I talk about knowledge base, um, most likely keep thinking about FAQs, right? Um, you can say, hey, what, what color is the drill? And your FAQ says it's yellow, okay? Now, how big is your FAQ or your knowledge base? How big do they need to be to be effective? The first time we deploy a chatbot, we realized that 98% of the questions, we were getting them for the first time. So our idea was like, okay, we're going to get all these questions and train our bot to really answer them. But then we realized that the same intent could be said in so many different ways that we, it was very hard for us to move into saying, okay, we're getting the same questions. It was always new and, and new questions. So what we tried to do with that was change a little bit the way that we organize the flows of, of these questions in the, in the pre-sale to kind of like make, make it a little bit narrower so we could be more efficient. And then focus the value on the conversational AI on, on areas where we can connect with our systems. Let me give you an example, um, especially for e-commerce. One question that you always get is, where is my product? Mm. That is a very easy question to answer from, from a conversational AI because you have an integration with a shipping system that knows exactly what is the product. So you can act as an interface, right, between a user using, using voice, for example, and the system and, and give the information. And, and in those cases that are complex in terms of integration, the bots work amazingly well. Mm-hmm. In areas where, where you need more, with, with more open questions, so for example, um, what is the best tool to secure uh, a screw? There are, there are many possible answers and there are many possible ways of asking the same question, especially internationally. Um, if you think in Spanish, there are just so many ways of saying hammer. Every country has like at least two. So how do you teach these? How do you move these flows? So again, areas where, where you can extract the answer from a system are amazing for a conversation AI. Areas where you use more knowledge are more challenging and, and they require you having a very, very strong knowledge base, which mm-hmm. is challenging for most companies. Yeah, and a lot of knowledge bases. I think they're, they're undervalued, under undervalued definitely from a from a uh, kind of like a data standpoint, being a repository for content for conversational AI. However, a lot of the knowledge bases that I've seen have been not written in a way that is digestible from a chatbot. So there's massaging that needs to be done. But then, as you said, sometimes you'll hear questions for the first time. Because it might be that the knowledge base that you have has been built up over, you know, based on the assumptions of the people that built it, you know, and then everyone starts, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to do the right thing and then has done the right thing and done a good job so far. But when you put something in the wild and anyone can ask it anything, it's quite often that, you know, that question of what's the best thing to, to, to you know, secure a nail could be a hammer. 
but it could be a different type of hammer. It could be a different certain type of nail, depending on what material you want to hammer it into and what you want to try and hammer it, what you want to try and nail it to. So there's so much complexity that a human on the phone would just kind of, with some knowledge, work out. But a lot of this stuff hasn't ever been codified in at the enterprise level before. I'm wondering, did you have to do anything in particular to, you know, take data that you already have and and make it fit for consumption in a in a conversational interface? Um, yeah, what what we are working on is uh, trying to get a very in, a very grasp on the intent on on the question, and then ask cl- clarifying questions. So I, we put people through a flow, right? And and for example, it, it depends on on the on the channel. But if you're doing it in chat, this is a little bit easier, right? Because you can limit the answers. So for example, somebody asks, okay, what is the best? Um, what would be the best way to hang a picture, right? So what you can do it's like you can understand the intent as hanging a picture and then you can ask clarifying question what what's your wall made of and then you give them the options like drywall uh you know brick blah 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 and as they choose you take them down more of a decision tree than just mm-hmm. trying to go conversationally that that seems to have been working better for us bring some more structure into the unstructured part um and then in the areas again where they are really structured, like where is my order, just connect with our systems and flat out give you the answer immediately. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, yeah. <clears throat> so you're dealing with the the breadth of language from the outset, but as soon as you recognize that initial intent, you then scope the conversation and narrow it down to, to confined options. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. What was the... the um, I've been reading a lot recently. There's been a, quite a few studies that have been released over the last couple of weeks, which is um, indicating that a lot of enterprises, not necessarily specific to conversational AI, but in general, the things that they're aiming to do all center around trying to improve customer experience. You mentioned there at the beginning that, you know, Stanley Black & Decker is wanting to move from being a tool merchant, for want of a better word, into being a brand that is building relationships with people, helping people in their journey, helping providing that kind of customer experience and building those relationships and being helpful. Was that the primary kind of drivers for exploring this kind of technology? Was it all customer experience based or was there anything else that you were trying to, to either learn or get out of it? Yeah, what what we're trying to do is uh, drive efficiencies and, and expand the reach, right? There are so many touch points in, in the customer journey. How, how, do you, how are you in every customer journey um, in a way that it's seamless, that it's accessible, right? And, and quite honestly, it, it is very hard and expensive to do it just using humans. Uh, so AI has a lot of promise to to help you deliver those services in, in a cost-efficient way, but also in a very fast way. Mm, mm, absolutely. And um, so you you have prior experience with conversational AI prior to Stanley Black & Decker. Um, where, where did that come from? When did you first kind of take an interest in, in chatbots and conversational AI and, and that kind of stuff? So my, my first experience happened many years ago. I, I, I was working in a, mostly an agency that would do digital transformation, and we had a customer that was a telecommunication company. 
And it was absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of people calling and, and chatting and texting. And, and we saw the conversation AI as a very cool idea into how to engage. And we created probably until today, it's my favorite bot. This company happened to have a dog that, that was part of all the commercials and, and everything. And, and what we did was instead of manning our chat bot with, with like a bot as itself, we made the, the dog the star. So whenever you would be calling or chatting, you'd be chatting with this character that it was a dog. And, and all the answers from, from the bot were helpful, were driving, were transactional, but it was like talking with the dog. Right. And, and again, this character was very, very famous. So, you know, the dog would bark and like send you like wiggling tail things when, when he had done a good job and, and things like that. So it made the experience not only useful, but a lot of fun for the people. Right. They obviously knew they were not talking with a, with a dog, but it created like this suspension of reality where, you know, the dog was helping you. And if you ever were transferred to a human, it, it, it felt like a fun experience for them. And, and that was the first time that I was involved with a conversational AI project. Again, this mm -hmm. is like really 10 years ago. You know, this area has progressed so much uh, from, mm -hmm. from what we could do in the past. But these basic principles of humanizing the experience and, and making it fun stuck with me. And, and ever since I've been a big, big fan and proponent of using conversational AI. Mm. It's interesting because that that example is is using kind of personality design to and taking it to the real to the real edge. You know, taking the dog character, building the whole assistant around that dog character, and I think that like it, it seems novel, but what it does is it helps in a bunch of areas. Like in that instance, it helps kind of dehumanize the experience a bit. So you're managing expectations. So you're not saying that you're talking, you're not trying to pass it off as you're talking to a human. You're quite, you're being quite blatant about the fact that this isn't a human. And so if there is any issues, people will be just like, well, it's just the dog, you know, like there's no real kind of high expectations kind of thing. And you leave a lot of room for those kind of surprise and delight moments where you can, the dog's helpful and solves the customer's problem. And it's kind of like being quirky with it and stuff like that. And you leave a load of room to really enhance the customer experience. And like over the last, I don't know, five years even there's been some examples of that you know Domino's had the has the dom bot and they did something in alexa which was quite quite quirky um there's been a couple of others i think there's one in the uk called uh compare the market and their mascot is a is a um a meerkat and they've created this kind of like meerkat bot. I can't remember what it's called now. Sergei bot, something like that. So there's there's evidence of it happening, but not not happening quite as much as it should. I think. I think people undervalue the the personality design aspect of it. You know, I, I think it's kind of difficult because not every company has a character or something that that can be used, right? Um, the first rule is that you need to be true to who you are uh, as you communicate where you're doing a, a bot or whatever. So a lot of these companies would not have this character. If you have the character and, and you can leverage this character to kind of give a personality to, you, to your bot, that, that's amazing and it creates amazing results. If you don't have it, then you, know, you start thinking, should I create 
this character and and then give the character the personality that my brand should have or or do I just use the bot as an extension of my customer support team and and make it more uh, for lack of a better name, I would say transactional, kind mm-hmm. of like pin it as like, hey, this is more efficient. I can help you in, in a much more efficient way that uh, an agent could do and and then go there. No, It, it really depends. Uh, I believe it's very personal. Each brand will have to make the call. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you, if you have the opportunity to leverage an, an asset, a character that you already have, and embed this personality into the bot, the, the difference and, and the results will, will be great. Mm, yeah. it's a, It reminds me, I was just trying to search there. There's a, there's a bank, and I can't remember what it's called. I was looking at it the other week. There's a digital bank, and what it does is it basically, um, it kind of aggregates your other banks. So, like, let's say, for example, if you've got, like, two bank accounts, this bank would be a layer on top, and it would just kind of read into your accounts and stuff. And, and basically it is a conversation first bank. And if you go to the homepage of their website, the first bit on the homepage is a, is an image of the chatbot, And it says something like, I can't remember what it is, but it's really, it's something like uh, if you keep spending so much money on takeaways, I'm going to have to subscribe you to a gym membership or something mad like that, you know, something really quirky. Um, yeah. Which, which is so they've obviously t- taken what is a bit of a cutting edge style brand and, and wrapped the character around it. But there's examples of like Capital One with Eno, where you know it's a bank, traditional bank as well, you know, probably perceived as such as well. Yet they've created Eno, which is a character in, in and of itself, which is their front face assistant. And then that's the, the identity of their assistant across all their different channels. So I suppose you're right, yeah, obviously it depends on the brand. Um, but there's some really good examples of where uh, even brands who you wouldn't think would have, you know, real personality in their assistance can craft it if they can, if they do it right, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, interesting. So, so when we spoke last time, you were talking about, um, the first time that you build a chatbot, you're likely to build it twice. And I mentioned that a uh, good friend of mine, David Law, who um, ex-BBC, ex-Skyscanner, um, he's now at a consultancy called Warracle. And he kind of built a chatbot for Skyscanner really early on, was one of the first uh, skills published in the Alexa skill store. And it was really funny when you mentioned that because that's essentially the line that he always says. He, all the presentations he gives and stuff like that, he always says that you will end up building your first bot twice. And a few people have probably been through that, but I'm wondering if you can share your perspectives on why that why that can be the case. Yeah, absolutely. So the first time you're doing it, um, you don't really know what, what you're doing because, uh, I mean, more there's more and more experience on the bots, but how is this bot going to really take part in, in your conversation strategy? Is that going to work? Uh, most likely the pre-ideas that you have are so embedded in, in your internal knowledge of, of the company and your own views on how people will work. Then when you send the bot into the wild, you're going to realize that, that you probably covered two 3% of the cases and, and, and we'll have to go and change and, and redo things. Um, and Stanley Black and Decker, 
first time we launched a bot, we were really thinking that it's going to be about after sales. And the reality is that when we launched it, most of the questions were related to pre-sales. And it had never, we had never thought about it. We saw that people go to our channel partners to get those answers, but they actually really wanted to get the answers from us. And, and it makes sense because we are manufacturing the tools. We, we know much more about tools probably than any hardware store would know that sells thousands of SKUs. We, we do tools. So um, that was a big realization on, on this one. We went back and, and had to adapt. The first time I did this uh, chatbot, uh, as I was telling you for this telco, we were very transactional. We wanted. We thought that people just wanted to go and 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 get like the answer. Hey, how much money do I have in my line? You know, this was in Latin America, so a lot of the phone lines have like these uh, prepay credit, and people wanted to know. We thought it was going to be very transactional, and we kind of, as a joke, created the the character, the the bot based on the character. But then we realized that what people were actually really doing was to go and talk with the dog, right? They really wanted to talk with the character. So we had to redo it. So, you know, 60% of the questions we realized were more about people enjoying having a conversation with a character they, they knew from, from TV. Every time you go, uh, and this is very important, that, that you have you build this flexibility in, in your bot as you are creating it, uh, because you need to be able to go wherever it takes you. Right. And mm-hmm. most likely it's not going to be where you thought originally that it was going to take you. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because with something like the web or mobile, you've got teams of people who, I mean, if they're doing it well, they'll definitely do research initially. They'll definitely have informed decisions that they bring into a, a project. Um, but then there's a period where they'll kind of create something and again, if they're doing it well, they'll test it. They'll get people involved. They'll get customers involved. They'll do some testing and they'll they'll get feedback and stuff like that. But I think a lot of what makes, a, I suppose, a design project unique for visual graphical user interfaces is that when it's kind of live, you never really know how good it is necessarily. They always say that good design is hidden and you can't really tell a well-designed website and stuff like that. But like, even if you're using Google Analytics and stuff to monitor where people are clicking and monitoring your conversion rates and stuff, you still don't really know why somebody's on that page. You don't really know exactly specifically the reason because they click a link it might be that because what's on that page is wrong and they think that more information is over here, or it might be because they've got an intent that they want to go and buy that product or whatever it might be. There's a lot of information lost. And so you can go live with a website, you can debate the, the design all day long, and you can, but you can still go live with a bunch of assumptions and never really find out whether those assumptions hold. Whereas with conversational AI, the first time you press the button to go live, all of your assumptions are immediately tested. So it's a, it's a, it's a unique technology type isn't it in that respect i i think that there are a lot of unique elements uh one thing that go across the board where you're designing a website and you're focusing on the ux is that successful companies are those that can create many iterations of of a product really fast um thinking about this i was in a meeting uh 
a few months ago. And and I don't know the numbers. Don't don't quote me on on the numbers. But just to give you an idea, the guys from Google were, were talking about how many updates they push per day, and it was an insane number. It was I don't thousands of of pushes into improving what they are doing. And and you would go with some of the companies that were there would would be updating once a year, you know, and you could totally tell the the difference that successful companies are those that are complete iterating one time over the next time, small changes, but making sure that they are continuously improving what they are doing. And and that builds the success. Now this is especially true in conversational AI, right? Um if you think that you can create these flows, throw them in the wild, and then come back next year, you you will not you most likely will will not be successful. You will be surprised. Um, when when you create a, a conversational AI, the logic is that you are doing it to save budget, to to be more efficient, and, and you know, flat out make it easier. The reality is that conversational AI, it's a big, complex um, challenge. That if you are going to launch a conversational AI and you think and you are going to do it well, it, it requires a lot of resources. It requires a lot of thinking and it requires a lot of alignment with, with your goals and a, and a very deep understanding of what do you want to do and a commitment to iterating, you know? Um, I don't know how many changes we push a week, but um, we divide it in, in use cases. And we realize that uh, from what we believe that a use case will do, uh, once we launch it, the amount of iterations in that very same use case, it will just blow your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when whatever you are doing, uh, I, I would really suggest that you look into how can you very dynamically own it and and being able to iterate and every day push three, four, five commits, uh, make sure that every day this gets better. Otherwise, the results will will be far from, from helpful. You know, it might really be a deviation from creating a great customer experience and your users will see it more as uh, you blocking the access to your people. And, and it's going to become more of an obstacle than, than an enabler. Mm, that's very interesting. Because I suppose organizations that have already got that culture and have built that culture into web and mobile are going to fare a bit easier. Whereas hearing you say that, if I'm, if I'm an organization that is a little bit more traditional, maybe it's a bit more waterfall in how they go about their projects and stuff like that, it's it's easier said than done, isn't it, to develop that kind of culture? I wonder if there's anything that you've learned over the years to encourage that kind of culture. Like, did that culture exist in Stanley Black and Decker before you arrived in this kind of stuff? Like, how how do you go about encouraging that kind of culture? I believe it, it it's a change from from leadership. Um, when I joined the company, the the president of the company at the time. He already had this vision and this idea of change and bringing more agility. I I think that the company itself was realizing that that we really need to be more agile. Now Stanley Black and Decker it's 189 years old, so obviously there's there's a lot of uh, 
corporate knowledge on how things should be done that has been extremely challenged in the last 10 years in, in the speed that things need to move. So I would say that, well, in many areas, we have changed and became a much more agile organization. We're constantly working and, and have teams looking in how can we be even more agile and, and more agile. And, and we know that we still have ways to go. In, in customer experience, uh, we still understand that we, we need to be more agile and, and we need to be able to, to be more flexible and, and deliver more. Uh, it's, it is a constant change. It is a constant change. Um, I would say that probably the biggest, probably one of the areas more challenging when you are dealing with change management in in a little bit older organizations is understanding that you don't need to be perfect. You need to, to have like 80%, launch with 80% and understand that your second iteration will deal not only with the 20% you are missed, but redoing the other 80% and then continuously improve. And, and that requires a lot of changes in some areas. It, it's absolutely possible to do. In some other areas, it's a little bit more difficult. But again, this, this ability to iterate in, in very accelerated cycles, I, I believe it's what separates very successful companies from not so successful companies today. Mm. It's having the confidence and the risk profile that would enable you to go with something that is 80% there. Because a lot of companies, uh, if they're not familiar with agile thinking and practices, then they, and they're not aware that, you know, 80% of users use 20% of the features and things like that. And the real importance on day one is to get those 20% of the features finished and, and, and good enough. Um, it's quite a difficult, or it can be a case of requiring constant kind of ongoing stakeholder management, can't it? You know, I've been in, in programs in the past where we've had this approach to digital service provision, not on the conversational AI side, although I've got stories there as well, but having that approach and the first first kickoff meeting this is this is all that, that we're talking about basically is that this is the way that we're working this is the pr principles and philosophy what we're trying to do is get to like what is the imperative stuff that we need to make happen but three weeks later it's well can we just put that in there we need that in there we need this in there so it's a constant massaging of stakeholders which is that well is that part of the 80% or 20% is that the must have requirements it's kind of like this constant sort of you know ongoing um effort i would say what at what point does it become um for those who are kind of just going through this hearing you speak about the importance of doing this for conversational ai maybe they have a chatbot that's dwindling a little bit or they don't have one but they're looking at it but they don't have that kind of culture you know at what point is there a point where it starts clicking and those stakeholders get it or is it a case of you constantly have to do a lot of stakeholder management to keep people understanding that this thing isn't perfect but what we want to try and do is deliver as much value as we can and we'll get to perfection over time yeah um that, that's a great question um first if you are in a position where you are constantly having to manage your key stakeholders most likely you're not delivering value Right, and 
if there's something or there's a position where you don't want to be, it's in not adding value. I believe that time to value is one of the most important metrics as you are going to launch a new project. Now, what does value mean? That That's where, where you go evolving. But you need to deliver value as soon as possible in, in the project. And for example, in, in our case, uh, you can say, okay, right now I realize that I have 30% of my interactions are somebody that whose product stopped working and it's under warranty. And that would be kind of an easier case for us to go and, and leverage conversation AI. And we're going to go and, and leverage the AI here. So what we're going to do, it's our value or the value that we're going to bring is that after X amount of weeks of work, we're going to automate X percentage of the calls, which will free the time for our agents to go and work on these other cases that would bring more value, right? Now, you define the problem and the value that you are bringing, and this is very specific, and it's something that you can execute. Now, you need to have a, a vision on where are you going, right? My vision is that, I don't know, somebody anywhere in the world would grab a phone and my conversational AI will tell this person immediately without even listening to the question, whatever he wants to know. And that, that's a vision, right? But the value is what you define that you are going to do so the stakeholders understand what can they expect. Because if that is not clearly defined, then and, and you say, hey, I'm going to create a conversational AI and, and it's going to solve all the problems in the world. It sounds ludicrous now, but it was my experience at the early time. I met with this vendor and they told me that... And keep in mind, I'm, I'm not an expert on AI, so sometimes it's hard to understand what are really the boundaries of the technology. Hmm. They told me that their system could grab all the manuals that we had already printed, scan them, read the words, translate them to every language, and use um, advanced learning to create relations. So they were going to scan, scan all the manuals and in a month we'll have like the smartest data sets that, that you imagine, okay? I, I believe that that was something that could be done. It was far from, from a reality. And the way that I had aligned value and expressed what we were going to do, it's like pretty much in two months, I was gonna come with this amazing knowledge base on and, and the bot was going to be able to answer all these questions that pretty much, you know, in my mind were like whatever anybody asks, we'll be able to answer. So obviously the alignment and the expectation and the value that I said in, in the stakeholders was that. Two months later, four months later, when we came, we were far from what we had promised. Mm. So it was a mistake. Uh, it's one of these moments where you have to acknowledge that you made a mistake, explain everybody what's the mistake, what's the course of correcting, uh, what, what are you going to do, and, and make sure that you that you put things that the value is something that you can achieve. You can have a vision on what you're going to do, and, and you're going to take many different steps to achieve that vision. But you need to make sure that your stakeholders are receiving value. I I am not 
aware of any company where they give you five years of running leeway or 10 years uh, until you bring value to the table, right? Uh, most companies are a little bit more short-sighted in, in the time to value. And, and that's why, you know, in transformation, you always try to have a portfolio of success or, or of projects so you can administrate some things are going to happen like three years from now. How do I break down? So every two weeks or one month or whatever is the frequency, you can deliver value. What I always tell my teams is like, we need to think big, but execute small. Hmm. And make sure that if we have this big dream for something we're gonna do in three years, we need to make sure that we understand every two weeks, where are we going to be? And what is the value that this iteration is gonna bring? What's the value on the next iteration? And when I say you build 80% of it, you don't wait for, for it to be perfect. It's because there are always things that people will be asking and, and try to add into your project. You wanna give yourself the flexibility to say, okay, we're going to be iterating. This is what fits into this iteration. All these amazing ideas will fit in iteration three, four, five. Just don't wait. Just don't wait to have everything perfect because it will never be perfect, okay? And the 80%, it's uh, just a way of speaking. Um, what I'm trying to say is just, you'll never have things perfect. There will always be corrections, improvements that you need to do. So make sure that while you are delivering on the value you promise, make sure that you give yourself room for improvement and understand that things continue improving all the time, right? I mean, we are about to, we're on iPhone 13, right? From iPhone one to 13, <laughs> how many improvements happen, right? So you can argue that if you look from, if your vision is what the iPhone two would do, you can say that iPhone one was 80% of the product. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm referring to 80% of the product. I'm not saying something that would solve 80% of the value. You need to deliver on the value you promise, but give yourself right. room to continue growing your, your project, your product, whatever you're doing. I'm with you. Interesting. That's very good. Uh, yeah, that is wicked. So what would you say is the biggest lesson that others can apply from either from what we've spoke about already or generally from your experience. We've spoke about a lot of things. We've spoke about customer experience and changing the ethos of a company to become more customer centric and build relationships with customers. We've talked a lot about kind of like uh, conversational AI applications and how that is helping uh, increase you know, it'll improve customer service and helping you scale and, and manage your costs and things like that. And we've also spoke a lot about internal culture, transformation, change management, that kind of stuff. Um, is there any kind of like, if you were to single out a single thing that, was, that is either the biggest lesson that you've learned or the biggest pointer you would say for teams either getting started or trying to scale, what would it be? I would say the first thing, uh, it's understand value. Right, and, and what is perceived as the value that they are going to get for all your key stakeholders in what you are doing. And once you understand that, there's a saying that goes under promise, over deliver. Always under promise and over deliver. Because you need to build trust into what you're doing. The longer, the bigger the project it is, the more trust you need in, in people that keep them engaged, to keep them 
with faith, giving you resources until you get to the desired outcome, right? And the way of keeping trust, it's by delivering. It is very hard for somebody to wait two years to, to see the result of something they invested on or, or that they are working on. So try to make sure that you always under promise, you over deliver, and you do these in, in stages. If you have this huge idea on what's going to be in three years, make it so that in a few months you can show value, right? It, it, it will be a little bit of value, and then you add to that little bit of value, and then you go building on this vision. It's going to help you maintain the alignment that you need. It's going to help you keep the main stakeholders uh, excited and aligned and supporting the vision of what you are building. Fantastic. Orlando, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely fantastic. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Nice one. And thank you all for joining. And please do go to vux.world forward slash C-O-G-N-I-G-Y to join me on Thursday for this exclusive CX Maturity Workshop. And there's also one on September the 1st as well, if you cannot make this Thursday. So thank you again, Orlando. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you all for tuning in. And we'll see you tomorrow when we're chatting to Braden Ream, CEO of VoiceFlow, about conversation design maturity. So a lot of conversations about maturity going on these days. We'll see you there. Thank you. Bye.